evidence and answers. There are four essential questions every worldview must answer. What are they? Which worldview provides the best answers? Listen to Pat's interview with legal scholar Abdu Murray as he reveals the four major questions and why Christianity offers the best answers to the greatest questions of life. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is a popular teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Without delay, here's Pat as he concludes his interview with Abdu Murray. We're talking about various worldviews here, and you said secular humanism focuses on what is the inherent value of human beings. Well, how does secular humanism answer this question? Well, it's funny, when you look at the, the, the various secular humanists who have stri- striven to answer this, you, you see this incoherence that you and I were talking about just a, just a moment ago. Secular humanist manifestos, and, and secular humanists seem to love to write manifestos, and I quote quite a few of them, they'll just say it as a blanket statement. For example, in the Secular Humanist Manifesto 2, it says, human life has meaning because we create and develop our futures. Well, I'm not sure that, that that's just tautological. That doesn't really say anything. It has meaning because we say so? Well, what if someone says it doesn't have meaning? And there's plenty of folks who have, who have said it doesn't have meaning. So a secular humanist struggles with this dissonance of saying we all have meaning, but uh, being unable to justify this. I mean, Richard Dawkins, for example, says that human beings are simply machines for propagating DNA. It is every living object's sole reason for living. Well, that's purpose, sure, but when we think of our purpose and our, our dignity and our objective value, is that what you think of, just propagating DNA? Yet he's being honest. He's saying, look, there is nothing of actual value if we are just here by accident. And in the book, I I point out quite a few atheists who will lament, and they'll say, look, this depresses me to say this, and I've looked high and low, but there is no morality, there is no objective value other than what we make of it ourselves, if there is no God. And yet they still want to say that there is value to us. So the answer is, if I can be so bold as to say it, the answer is bad, because essentially there is no answer. You want to affirm it? but you don't give me a good reason to affirm it. You've had, for example, Sam Harris in his book, The Moral Landscape. He tries to talk about objective morality and value for human beings at a scientific level by saying that which is conducive to the greatest number of uh, people flourishing and the least amount of pain, that's called good. Well, that's fine, but why is human flourishing good in the first place? He's begged the question. He's never actually answered the fundamental question. Why should we care about human value as opposed to the flourishing of the H1N1 virus or the flourishing of, of plague rats? Who cares about if human beings live or die? The universe doesn't care. Only we care. And that's not objective. That's by definition subjective. Yeah, those are great points that you point out. Now, briefly, what answer does a Christian have to offer? Mm, well, uh, the idea of objective human value for it to be objective, it must be beyond human opinion. In other words, if every human being thought something was right, even though it was horrible, like torturing a baby, if we all thought it was okay, it would still be wrong, because objectively, irrespective of our human opinions, it's still wrong to torture babies. Now, what is the source of a moral value beyond human beings? Well, that sounds a lot like God. You need a transcendent being who is beyond us, who's also personal, because moral values are personal, so you need a God for that kind of a thing. So you can't have atheism answer this, but 
God does answer the question of objective human value. But here's what's interesting about the gospel. I think uniquely among all the world religions, you have a gospel that really tells you about human value in this way. God doesn't just say you're valuable and leave it at that. He actually demonstrates your value. How do you and I know what's valuable? I got a lot of pictures in my house, and I got the video of my, my kids' first steps and their first words. But if my house was catching on fire, I would grab my wife and my kids, and I'd get out of there. And I would weep about all the lost belongings, but I wouldn't go back in there after them, risking my life for those things. But if my daughter is in there, you better believe I'm going back into that house, and I'll risk life and limb to save her, because I value her so much that I'm willing to pay the ultimate price for her. Well, we know that God values us because he was willing in history to pay an immeasurable price to show us how immeasurably valuable we are so we could spend an immeasurable eternity with him. Yeah, you know, that's a great point to point out to atheists or those from a naturalist worldview. You got any real-life examples of a dialogue you had with particular atheists and using this particular question here and pointing out their inconsistencies. Oh, absolutely. You know, the <laughs> two examples come to mind. One was um, uh, a friend of mine was sitting across the table from me, and he's a secular humanist minister, and he said, you know, Christianity is wrong because Christians are arrogant, and they believe that everyone else is going to hell, but they're going to heaven, and everyone else is terrible, and they're the ones who are virtuous and true. That's arrogant to me. And I said, really, arrogant? That's interesting because the Secular Humanist Manifesto says that human beings have the ability and the responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment for the greater good of all, of all mankind. He said, that's right. Said, so you have the ability to better humanity? Yes. I said, you sure? You have the ability? He said, yep, I sure do. I said, okay, well, the Gospel tells me that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, that I will always seek my own way, that I need someone who is not me to save me from me. I believe in a Savior who is Jesus, yet you believe in yourself. Can you tell me again who's arrogant here? And the, the point sunk in. But more poignantly, a number of years ago, I sat across the table from another friend of mine who was an atheist. And he disbelieved in God because he said, you know, there's too much of suffering and evil in the world. And I went about and I gave him some philosophical answers for this. You know, God could allow a certain suffering to exist for some greater possible good in the future. We don't know it. We can never know it because we don't know the future. But if God exists, he would know those things, and we can't judge him for those things. So he could let some suffering exist for a greater possible good 50,000 years from now. He said, wait, wait, I want to know how God is good and God values me or my mother when he let her die of cancer when I was 10. And now a philosophical answer won't always do. So I wanted to answer his question, because his question was about human value. His question was about purpose and pain and all these things. And so I basically gave him the answer that I gave earlier, is that if God exists, you know, anybody can say that God could allow suffering to exist for some greater possible good, including your mom's death. But can I tell you how I know God values you and your mother? Is that he didn't allow some suffering to exist for a greater good. He allowed his own son to suffer, not for some theoretical good, but for the greatest possible good the salvation of the entire world. And he values you and your mother because he paid the ultimate price so that he could have eternity with you. Now, if you want to look for value, atheism won't give it to you, but the Christian gospel does. Well, that's a great answer. Now let's move on to the next worldview, pantheism, which is the foundation of the Eastern religions here. And they emphasize or ask the question, how do we escape suffering? And yes. how does the pantheist address this issue? 
Well, a pantheist would address this issue by saying that um, all suffering is essentially an illusion, and it's the illusion that is brought on by, as the Buddhists would say, it's desire. The Hindu would say you have an illusion of an individuated self, when really you are God. Um, Deepak Chopra and all the Western sort of versions of pantheism say the same thing. You are God, not a God, but all part of the one God, and you're living in the illusion that you're a separate individual, and this illusion causes you to suffer. And if you would just enlighten yourself out of the situation, you'll escape the suffering of this illusion, and you'll become part of the eternal absolute. So it's interesting because when you look at the way they answer this question, Eckhart Tolle, for example, gives a, and I quote this in the books as well, his, his, the statement he gives is this, Enlightenment consciously chosen means to relinquish your attachment to past and future and to make the now the main focus of your life. So what he's saying is, don't focus on the anxieties of the past. Don't worry about the future. Focus on the now. And then he says that your pain comes from that, from your inability to focus on the now. He says, how much more pain do you need before you can make that choice? That's interesting, because what he's saying is, is that when you enlighten yourself out of the situation, you won't feel any more pain. Let go of the past and don't worry about the future. The question I have back for him is, can you really tell the parents who lost their children in Newtown, Connecticut, to let go of that past with their child and to not lament the future without that child and live in the now only, and that somehow all their pain will go away? Is that real? He's saying that suffering is an illusion. In some senses, that's kind of insulting. Now, I'm not saying he's trying to insult them. I'm just saying that, ultimately speaking, that does not afford them the dignity of the truth of their loss. And even pantheists mourn when their children die. So what makes sense of the fact that we have this sense of loss? Because our pain is not an illusion, and we have to confront it. And the beauty of the gospel is Jesus didn't tell you it was an illusion. He told you it was real, it was painful, it was profound, and it will affect you. And he, as God incarnate, was not going to stand aloof from it, but he was going to take it on to himself, deal with pain and death once and for all, so that even though we have pain in this life, ultimately there will be a place where there's no more tears and no more suffering, and we will be in communion with those we've lost, and with the one who made us, who was of course God. Now we move to a theistic worldview and Islam. And you state Islam's main concern is, how is God great? Mm. Well, how does Islam answer that question? Well, Islam uh, largely answers this question sometimes through what's called the via negativa. In other words, from a view of what God is not. So Islam was born essentially in the same place where Christianity and Judaism flourished in the Middle East. And so what it did was, in some senses, not every sense, but in some senses, compared itself to those views and said, well, God is not like the God of the Christians. So God is not triune. He is one and absolutely one, and he needs no partners. So a Muslim says that the idea of the Trinity suggests that God needs partners, that the Holy Spirit and the Son are partners with God the Father somehow and are separate gods, and that diminishes God's greatness. Well, if we thought that then they'd be right. But no Christian actually believes that. So in one sense, they're attacking a hill no one's defending. Christians don't believe that the Father and the, and the Son and the Holy Spirit are three separate gods. But also they would say that God would never condescend to incarnate himself. He is great and wholly transcendent. He would never interact with human beings in the intimate sense you find in the incarnation, and certainly would never 
subject himself to the tortures that would be worked upon him by his own creation, as in the crucifixion. So God is so great that he would never condescend to be amongst us. In fact, the revelation of the Quran did not come from God directly to Muhammad. It had to be mediated and mitigated through the angel Gabriel, because God would not condescend to talk to a human in this sense. So he's very aloof in that sense, and that's his majesty. How do you explain the doctrine of the Trinity to a Muslim in a way that they would best understand it? Well, I would proceed from this idea of God's greatness. First, we have to tell them what it's not, because Muslims, I think, have an, often have a mischaracterization of what the Trinity is. The Quran talks about the Trinity in two different ways. It says that the Trinity, in one sense, is God, Mary, and Jesus. And no Orthodox Christian, and I can't think of any Christians at all, who ever thought that the Trinity was God, Mary, and Jesus. So once again, we don't have to defend that doctrine, because it's not our doctrine. But the Quran also says that forbear from saying that God is a third of three, that he's one of three. Well, again, no Christian is saying that God is one of three in a triumvirate of gods. We're not saying that. We're not saying that God is one God and three gods, nor is he one person and three persons. We're saying he's one in his nature, one God, who has three distinct personhoods. Now, we have to be sure we clarify the distinction between nature and personhoods. Personhoods are basically just centers of consciousness. So while that's tough to grasp, and I would admit, of course it's tough to grasp, that shouldn't bother us, because this is important. If God is truly great and totally transcendent, and I agree with that statement, then it would be difficult to understand him. If we understood him 100% as if it was easy enough to understand who you and I are, well, then it begins to look like we made him in our image, as opposed to the other way around, if he's so easy to understand in his very nature and being. But the Trinity does not defy our logic. It just simply transcends our logic. And so you and I don't see tripersonal beings running around. But God could be a tripersonal being, and no law of logic is violated by that. That's one thing. But the second way to look at it is just equally important. A Muslim believes that God is great. And the Quran says that God is self-subsistent. He does not need anybody to be who he is. He needs no one at all. It also says he's the only uncreated being. Now, if that's the case, then he would need nobody to be who he is, and there was a state of affairs where he was the only thing that existed. But the Quran also says that he's merciful and loving and kind and forgiving and all these things. These are all relational qualities. So if God is intensely relational in the sense that he can give and receive relationship in one sense in Islam, but he was also the only uncreated being, then the question is this, who was God relating to? Who was he having relationship with when there was no one but himself? He needed to create something to have relationship with. But that can't be the case because if he's self-subsistent, then he wouldn't need anybody else to be in relationship. So you have a God who has a lack, who's not perfect, if he's by himself in creation, without creation. Well, that's not a great God. But the truly great God is a triune God, because God exists in the Trinity from eternity in community. He's all, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit always love each other. They're always in relationship. So there's never a time when God lacked relationship. He always had it. So he never needs us for relationship. He always has it, but he gives us relationship, not for his sake, but for ours. Now, that is a profound but also very great and important point that you 
pointed out. And if you're listening, you didn't quite understand that. Go to Evidence and Answers and hear that answer again. That's a very profound and important answer in understanding the Trinity and explaining it to Muslims and others who would question it. Well, Abdul, how does the incarnation and the crucifixion show God's greatness? This is really something that was pivotal for me as well. The incarnation is basically the idea that God comes and condescends to be among human beings. I look at it a couple of ways. The greatest possible being, who is the greatest moral being, who wants to reveal himself to us in the greatest possible way, he would do it in the greatest possible way that we can fathom. Now, if you were to want to learn something about me, how would you do that? You could read my book, please. You know, fantastic. I'd love if 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 people did that. You could read my emails. You could read my tweets, whatever it might be. But you're always getting a mitigated version of me. You're never getting the full me. The best way to know me and to understand me is to actually commune with me. And while God has sent his books, and I think the greatest book ever written in the Bible, it's the revelation of God, but it is the revelation about the revelation. And the revelation that is the consummate revelation of God is Jesus Christ. That's why in Hebrews we read that God has spoken various times in diverse ways to the prophets through the word, but in these last days he's spoken to us through his Son. The greatest way to reveal yourself is to become incarnate in someone's life. That's one thing. But the second thing is this, and this is what really finally tipped it for me in terms of wanting to believe in the gospel. I believe Allahu Akbar, God is the greatest possible being. The Quran also says he's al-wadud. That's a word that means he is the loving one or full of loving kindness. Now, if he's the greatest possible being and he's loving, then he would love in the greatest possible way. Well, what is the greatest possible way you and I know about love? How do we express love in the greatest possible way? It's self-sacrifice. We honor and value self-sacrifice as the greatest expression of love that there is. But human beings do that all the time. And if God could not do that, self-sacrifice, then we're capable of love in a greater way than God. And that simply can't be possible. But the beauty of the gospel is that God loves better than we do. Because whereas we will give our lives for strangers or for those who love us, the gospel says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were sinners, God's enemies, Christ died for us. So the greatest possible being would love us in the greatest possible way, and the greatest possible way is self-sacrifice. And I find that no other place than in the cross on which the incarnate Jesus died. Yeah, and that's a great way to explain it, especially to a Muslim. How do Muslims respond when you explain it in that way? After a while, we've talked about this for some time, they'll they'll, they'll respond by saying this, either, that's beautiful. That's the most beautiful story I've ever heard. And I said, well, if it's the most beautiful story you've ever heard, then doesn't it make sense that it's about God? And they begin to open up. Some have opened up. Some have actually given their lives to Christ because of it. There's always going to be those who don't want to hear it. But I've seen people's minds and hearts changed. Their eyes will change the minute they see the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of what God has done for them. That's great. You know, you state in your book, we love the truth or say that truth is important, but we seldom actually mean what we say. Mm. Explain that for us. What do you mean by that? Oh, sure. Well, I think that people don't have a problem with truth. They have a problem with honesty. And what I mean by that is, We say these things without a full realization of what the truth is going to cost us. So 
you take an example, for instance, in, in days gone by during the Bill Clinton days, where he was, you know, on trial for perjury and impeachment and all these things. The economy was going great. We don't want to mess things up, so let's let this slide under the rug. So truth took a back seat to comfort. But nowadays, things aren't going so great, and so now we call for the heads of those who lie to us, you know, because we we're not so comfortable anymore. I think oftentimes we mistake truth for the consequences of truth. An example of that comes to mind whenever I watch the movie The Passion of the Christ. I see something. There's a scene where Pontius Pilate's talking to Claudia, his wife. Jesus has been brought before him, and he sends Jesus away to be judged by Herod. And Claudia says, the Bible actually records this part of it, you know, don't do anything to this man, has nothing to do with him. I suffered greatly last night in a dream because of him. Well, Pilate is, you know, sort of you know, walking a hard place and you know, what to do with this man. And he says, Claudia, how do you know truth? Can you hear it when someone says it? And she says, if you won't hear it, no one can tell it to you. And then he responds very, very curiously. He gets mad at her and he says, I have been putting down riots in this outpost for 11 years. And if I let this man go, Caiaphas will start a riot. If I condemn him, his followers will start a riot. Caesar has warned me twice that if there's one more riot, it will be me on that cross. That's my truth, Claudia. That's my truth. That's not his truth. That's the consequences of truth. He blurred the two. Oftentimes we do that. We see the consequences of coming to Christ, of seeing how he'll change our lives, how he might how this, this decision might cause us to be alienated from our, uh, from our cultures or whatever it might be. And we let that govern us more than a sincere pursuit of the truth. You know, the, the moon is a cold, small, dead rock. Compared to the earth, it's one-sixth of our size. Compared to the sun, it's not even a ten-millionth of the size of the sun. And the sun is this blazing, beautiful, warm star that gives light to this world. But if the moon goes in front of the sun... It blocks out its light. Why is that? How can this cold, dead rock that's so tiny block out the sun? Because we hold it close to us. And I think that oftentimes the price we pay for the truth, we hold that so close to us that the the cold, dead rock of our cost, of our personal issues, blocks out the radiant sun that God has provided for us. Oh, that's great. You know, as we close the show, what do you have to say to that person who is holding that cold, dead rock so close to him. What exhortation do you have to give to that person? Well, I'll say this. I know what they're going through. I know what you're going through. If you're listening, I know what you're going through. I went through it. And in some senses, I'm still going through it because there's always a price to pay. Jesus is refreshingly honest because he doesn't tell you, join my club and it'll be sunshine and rainbows. He tells you, join my club and it will be tough for you, but I have overcome the world. And I can say from personal experience, whatever pain you go through, whatever cost or upheaval might be in your life, who you gain in response, in return, far outvalues, far outweighs whatever you will lose. He is worth it. I'm living testimony to that fact. Those are great words. We've been talking with Abdu Murray, who's got a great new book out that's going to be a great equipping tool for all Christians to engage the unbelieving world, but also a great book to give to your unbelieving friend who wrestles with these questions and he seriously engages 
them at their level and the kind of questions they're asking and provide some great answers. So it's a great evangelistic tool, but also a great equipping tool. The book is called Grand Central Question, and it's published by InterVarsity Press. And Abdul, you also have a website where people get more information from you, isn't there? Absolutely. Uh, it's embracethetruth.org. No hyphens, no dashes. Just embracethetruth.org. We have free videos and articles and these kind of things that are available for people to be equipped to reach out to their friends. One interesting thing, too, is we provided bonus content that goes with the book. So if you go to, if you, go to you see the, the book banner, click it, there's a free bonus content. And if you tell us when and how you bought the book, and I don't care where you bought it from, I just says when and how you bought the book, you'll get an email that will tell you how to download free videos and study guides for the book. Well, we've been with Abdul Murray, author of the book, and he is also the president of Embrace the Truth International. So, Abdul, it's been great to have you. Thanks for being on the show with us. Well, thank you so much. It's been my honor. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. This concludes Pat's interview with former Muslim Abdu Murray. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you would like to team with us, please start with prayer. And then to donate, log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers is brought to you by our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us here next week or on the web for more evidence and answers.